Local voices, local conversations. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here at Napa Broadcasting. The drive from Napa to Sacramento is only an hour. Yet sometimes the gap between what's happening there, particularly with respect to law enforcement and criminal justice, and what's happening in our own community is far longer. Recently, a number of laws have passed, which have a very direct impact on our criminal justice system. And joining me to talk about how they might impact our community, as well as to catch up on numerous criminal justice issues here in Napa, I'm joined by Napa County District Attorney Allison Haley. Allison, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things I want to talk about first before we get into the specific laws is the way in which you and and really what you know of your colleagues around the state have to stay on top of all of the things that are going on in Sacramento. It's not as if, or maybe the DA Association has its own lobbyists in Sacramento, but there's a lot happening there all the time that affects district attorneys around the state of California. Uh, That's true. Um, My husband laughs because many times he'll find me at home in my office and I'm studying. And he said, well, I thought that part of our life was over now, but no, it is a constant um, accumulation of information to stay on top of all of the massive changes that have happened with sentencing law here in California. And then this last sort of deluge of pretty startling, pretty staggering changes in criminal justice have required hours of time from um, me, my management staff, and now trickling down to our attorneys that are in the office to make sure that we are enforcing precisely what our clients are telling us they want enforced. And what is your sense of why so much of this criminal justice law percolates up that way without input from the district attorneys. I mean, you might think the logical conclusion might be that legislators in Sacramento hear what people like yourself and your colleagues are thinking about and respond to that, but they seem to be on their own agenda there sometimes. Mm, how much time do you have? <laughs> I think that there are many uh, many variables in that algorithm. I think that there, oh, there's a generational uh, belief and awareness that things like the war on drugs have really have cost us, not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of um, the absence of all of these men and women uh, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our families, because they're incarcerated. I think that there is a belief and a desire for issues such as homelessness and drug addiction and mental health problems to be treated as the public health problems that they are rather than the criminal justice problems. Um, And right now, DAs, police, law enforcement generally, I think are becoming quite disfavored. Um, There's a generalized belief that we want nothing more than to send people to prison, um, which is absolutely not at the heart of any deeply moral district attorney that I know. Where does that come from, do you think? Do you think that it's just something that's that's sprung up in the culture, that it comes out of the politics of the culture, or that it comes out of something else with respect to law enforcement and criminal justice? Mm, all of those things, right? It's the pendulum swift uh, changing from the tough-on-crime generations of the 80s and 90s. It's those kids like me that lived in homes with incarcerated parents that now can tell you what the cost is of having that kind of absence in their home and the kind of changes that it makes to individual lives. I think that the awareness of what's going on in our big cities and our urban areas 
um, certainly come at the forefront and, and, and flavor how it is that we're looking at DAs, at, at law enforcement. And then I look at my own Netflix queue, right? And what's in my Netflix queue but making a murderer and uh, the staircase. Well, I am. Uh, I let, my husband likes to say that The Silence of the Lambs was my Star Wars, right? <laughs> I, I do like true crime. Um, but so many of these documentaries and films have a slant where they have a rogue prosecutor. Um, and, and what you don't see in the public view are people, frankly, like me, who are deeply moral, that cared, that went into this business because it matters to me about equal protection, equal access to the law, how we treat vulnerable populations. And it has been my experience that the vast majority of district attorneys statewide and nationwide that I have met have and come from that perspective. Look, we're not lawyers that make a million dollars in the city. We are government lawyers who work every day locally in our communities trying to make it better. Is it your sense, I mean, this gets away a little bit from from this, but what we're hearing now in terms of Washington and attitudes about law and justice and who is really responsible and who isn't, do you think that's filtering down to to the local level? Do you think that it's setting a tone that's going to make this worse in some ways? I said this recently, you know, our county had the strategic planning sessions. And one of the things that I heard loud and clear, people want government to, they want signs that government continues to be compassionate. And I think that there is almost a gnawing desire for there to be instances of mercy and that vulnerable populations are being treated with kindness and that we are respecting their dignity. And I think that the criminal justice system is simply rich with opportunity to do those kinds of things. And that's what I'm hearing. And one of the other areas where this is playing out, and this really relates to one of the things I wanted us to talk about, is how it impacts juveniles and what we're doing with 14 and 15 year olds. And this was something, you know, the state got to look at in the initiative process at one point, and yet there still seems to be an awful lot of disagreement about how we should deal with 14 and 15 year olds in the criminal justice system. So there's been, as you know, uh, you know, a, a real plethora of studies and so forth about sort of human development at that age, at 14 and 15 year olds, and and these evidence-based practices about what kind of inf- interventions are meaningful, what kinds of things actually lead to a lower recidivism rate, how systems can be designed so that we don't just have a pipeline to prison. I think is the expression, right? And there's this constant sort of what do you do about those kids that are right in that spot where they seem to have a moral awareness and a moral accountability and an awareness that their crimes are both maybe morally wrong or legally wrong, yet they still maybe have stuffed animals on their bed, right? They're, they're right in that straddling, and how do we treat them? So the law had been that district attorneys made the decision whether I could what we call direct file in adult court, and those situations were limited by the statutes to these very serious crimes, murders and mayhems and certain kinds of sex offenses. With the passage of Prop 57, so not the most recent change, but that kind of next step, Prop 57 said, you know what, DAs, we no longer want that decision to be entirely up to you. We want that decision to be 
given to the judge, to the juvenile court judge. So what would happen is we would get a case like that in, and we, the royal we, a district attorney, right. not not our office necessarily, we would be reviewing a case, and we'd, and we'd knock on the door of the judge, and we'd say, Judge, you know, we think that this is a minor who might be appropriate to be handled in adult court, and here are the reasons why. Maybe they've already been dealt with in the juvenile system, and they've shown uh, no interest in the services provided. Here are all the reasons that they're no longer amenable to the services that are provided by the juvenile court, and they have shown a criminal sophistication that just justifies their treatment in an adult court, and a judge would decide, adult or juvenile. That's how it had been under Prop 57. And the most recent change um, that you're alluding to now, Senate Bill 1391, signed um, by the governor, 14 and 50-year-olds cannot be tried in adult court. And no matter what the crime is, no matter how depraved or horrendous and so forth. And you know what? I went to lunch last week with Mary Butler, who's our chief of probation here in Napa County. And I said, you know what? In my administration as a district attorney, which is a whopping two years, it has not happened. I've never had to make that right. decision on that kind of age group. Um, she says that it's happened twice in her memory decades ago, one on a murder and another on a gang case. And I think that that lack of of involvement, um, at least here in Napa County, needs to be out there. This is not a remedy that was regularly used in this small community. There is also the possibility that, and, and people have raised it, that SB 1391 really runs counter to Prop 57, and there seems to be a conflict that has to be resolved by the courts or by somebody. Well, that's it, too. Of, of all the things that we're going to speak about today, you may ask me a bunch of questions, and I'm going to look at you and go, well, we'll see. Right. Because there is no case law. A lot of the, the um, legislation, in my opinion, is a bit clumsy. It's not terribly elegant legislation. There's a lot of open questions, a lot of unknowns as we start forging through and enacting these kinds of, of laws. So there's a lot of things we don't know yet about how it's going to turn out. But in this particular case, by um, 1391, they have simply abolished the possibility for that rare case, it no longer is something that we can see moving over to adult court, these 14 and 50 year olds. And people have asked me, what do I think the effect is going to be in Napa? And I hope it's none. Mm-hmm. Where I think I'm going to see it or where I'm afraid we're going to see it is in those urban areas where we're going to have or those areas that are affected by a lot of gang activity where they're simply going to put the guns in the hands of the youngest because right. they know that there is not going to be the consequences that it would be once you pass the age of 15. Mm. Do you see any kind of time frame for this getting resolved? I, I could guess as well as you right. could as to when it's going to be resolved. Because it does leave things in, in an awful lot of limbo for, for prosecutors around the state. It does. One of the things I want to be clear about, too, is that, you know, we're not, as DAs, we're not legislators. We're enforcers. Um, I get a lot of um, people that are dissatisfied. Well, not a lot of people, but some of the criticism at DAs are really criticisms about the legislation that exists. You know, I have clients just like any other lawyer does. My clients are the people of the state of California. They have voted for this governor who has signed this. It is my responsibility now to enact it, and it's going to be a bumpy ride as we figure out exactly what it is that our clients want us to be doing. And my concern is because I will always come down on the side of victims. And this is a question that is likely to come up with a lot of topics that we discussed today. Were victims at the table? Were there representatives of, forget DAs. Right. Were there representatives of victims at the table 
is it is it built into the system? What about victim restitution? What about victim safety? What about these kinds of issues? And if it's not there, huh, I really, I have a hard, I, it's difficult. It's difficult to enforce when I, when I see that in many of these cases, victims have been forgotten in the process. Is that part of a trend that you see? I mean, for a while, concern about victims and victims' rights was a trend. There was a lot of focus on it, a lot of attention paid to it doesn't seem to be as front and center as it was several years ago. Unfortunately, just like styles and right. food, <laughs> crimes and, and trends, they're trends. They go in right. and out of style. And it has been, uh, for example, I know that we're going to talk about AB10 later, which is a mental health diversion program. There is nothing built in for victim restitution. <laughs> nothing built in. So when we get to that discussion... Is you know have victims been at the table? And I don't know why they seem to be taken out of the algorithm of the variables that are considered when these massive changes to criminal justice are made. But I am not seeing the influence of victims, and and it's difficult. I am the one. I am the one. My staff. We are the ones that sit in rooms the size of this one across the table from victims who have been profoundly affected by crime and. It's not an us and them. Many times the same uh, victims are from those same vulnerable populations. Right. This is not a, you know, a binary kind of system. We're talking with all the same people. And I'm, 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 uh, it's depressing to see the lack of their voice in the creation of new legislation. Talk about that in terms of, of mental health and, and, and what has changed in that regard. It's a good opportunity to move on to Sure. That. So AB 1810 is the newly signed legislation by the governor, and it's for mental health diversion. And it was born out of well-intentioned, important conversations about how we criminalize the mentally ill right. and what we can do about treating them with the respect and the dignity that they deserve as any other person suffering from an illness and designing a system so that we can stop putting them in jail and start providing them the services that they need for their for their illnesses well-intentioned important conversations AB 1810 it allows for the diversion of any misdemeanor and any felony and when I say any felony that's what I mean any any felony, no matter how violent, no matter how horrendous, it all falls under the potentiality of a defendant who can prove that the criminal act was a substantial, you know, that his mental illness, his or her mental illness, played a substantial role in the commission of that act. They can be eligible for mental health diversion. What that means is a two-year program that the judge authorizes at the end of that two-year program, if there is success, there is no conviction, there is no victim restitution, there is no prevention for the ownership of any firearms, it is completely wiped away. And again, let me stop and step back. It is born out of a wonderful, important, necessary conversation that we are having as a community about the proper handling and what we do as a compassionate society for those acts that are committed by those who are ill. But this, this wide open, no firearm restriction, no victim restitution. So here's an example. If I can prove to a judge that my kleptomania, so it is a mental illness that is um, 
categorized in the DSM, the Diagnostic right. Statistical Manual, and I say that my kleptomania made me steal Jeff Schechtman's pension. And I can prove that that kleptomania was the substantial reason why I did that, why right. I manipulated, why I exploited, and a judge allows me to go into a mental health diversion program. You, Mr. Sheckman, will receive no victim restitution. Not a penny of that is going to come back to you. There will be nothing on my record, no nothing, so that future employers or other people that I might come in contact can check and see those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And in this case, may not be a, you know, may not be a problem, but in other cases, it certainly would. No prevention for me to um, get a hold of any firearm at any time. That, um, and I don't mean to be alarmist. There are checks and balances. You have to convince a judge to allow this. And I do believe in our judges making meaningful and thoughtful decisions. Don't get me wrong. But when we have this just wide open um, legislation, Boy, do I do, do my clients know that? <laughs> I mean, that comes back to sort of the thing we were talking about at the beginning in terms of the way this happens in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. The fact that in any piece of legislation there has to be a process, there's hearings, there, there's pu theoretically mm -hmm. public input, and, and you would assume that during this process the victims had input into the process, the prosecutors had input, and yet this is what comes out. I yeah. mean, something's wrong with that system. Yes. Yes, uh, there's nothing more I can say to it. Although there was something unusual. I think that this came on kind of as an addition to a budget, so there weren't the necessary kind of hearings and so forth. That is for a subject matter expert that I am right, not right. Ab about how those things work. But here I am. I'm the district attorney of Napa County, and we are starting as a county to have conversation about what is this going to look like for Napa County. What does it look like for Napa County? It's going to require that all of those ma major stakeholders are at the table and that all of us, me included, have to keep our egos at the door. That it requires an honest and careful appraisal of each case, of what cases that we believe, um, which defendants we believe can be bettered by the kind of treatment. It's going to require, again, study. It's going to require for me and my deputies to, hold, to know a whole lot more about mental health issues, to hire the right kind of experts to advise us. It's going to require some very careful review of these cases. But are we putting so much responsibility into the hands of judges? I mean, we talked about it with respect to juveniles and, and, and how they're going to be treated. Now we're talking about judges making decisions with respect to this. More and more, we're just dumping things into the laps of judges. Well, I think, too, that there is a belief that these issues are better handled by a public health system rather than a criminal justice system, yet we still see it piled onto the criminal justice system. So I think that there's still going to be dissatisfaction about how it's being handled. We may talk about bail reform later today. Right. Uh, I'm sure it's on your list. Again, born out of necessary conversations to have, but what was provided to us may end up with results that end up we're in the same place that that we right. started at so do we put too much on judges yeah they're not mental health professionals right and neither am i um it, aren't these issues better met by not a lawyer at the table but right. a mental health professional at the table and shouldn't they be the ones that um that are making these decisions i think there is an argument for that yet you know the counter to that is you have people 
notwithstanding their mental illnesses that are um, in many times victimizing others. And there needs to be a kind of control over that so that we can continue to live in this beautiful place safely and able to walk the streets. So it really becomes sort of getting the right people at the table, getting the right risk assessment, being thoughtful and careful, and stop seeing these cases as just files on your desk. Is it your sense that these things that we're talking about and bail reform and and some others are part of a process, that this is not the end of the line, that these are well-meaning attempts to improve the system, to try and do things better, but like a lot of pieces of legislation, you have to fix it. And yes. that, that it's really <laughs> going to be incumbent upon your, yourself and your colleagues and victims and everybody else that's part of the system to make Sacramento understand that this is fine and we understand what you were trying to do and we understand that it was well-meaning, but it doesn't work and this is what has to be fixed. Well, and I think that that comes down to understanding my role as a district attorney. Again, I have clients who are very clearly communicating to me how they want things to go. I am sworn to enforce those things. I think district attorneys in the past have not done a good job about telling our story, about making clear what the scope of our jurisdiction is, about telling the story about the kinds of cases that we're handling and the kinds of things that we do. When I go out into the community, when I speak at Rotary Clubs Mm -hmm. and Kiwanis, I'll ask questions just to get a baseline understanding. What's our average number of homicides in Napa County? 100? 150? And they're shocked when the answer is two. Two is our average for Napa County. When I ask them questions about how many 14 and 50-year-olds have I tried as an adult, and when I say never, (laughs) I have never done that, it's always this sort of bringing it back down to let's talk about what's actually happening here and what our actual experiences is. Is it part of my responsibility to communicate that? I think it absolutely is because – Again, these are important conversations to have, and we deserve better than sort of the clumsy things that we're having to work with now that I don't think are going to ameliorate the very important problems that have been right. identified. Well, the problem, the other problem is that they happen, and this is not something for us to get into, but it, they happen in a political context. Mm-hmm. And again, to what we were saying before about trends of the moment, at one point the trend was to be tougher and mm-hmm. to incarcerate and we filled up the prisons, and there was a whole pushback against that. And now the trend is going in the other direction, and we haven't quite found any happy medium yet. We can't, but I'll tell you, um, as the district attorney, during this very interesting time in criminal justice, I do not apologize for dropping the hammer on some of the cases that come through my office that cry out for justice. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to ignore the the other side of it where people have forfeit the right to live with the rest of us and our office moves forward on those cases as well. Which sort of brings us when we talk about uh, tough crimes, this this felony murder rule mm-hmm. that uh, is also been SB 1437, mm-hmm. I think it is, that is also one of those laws that uh, has many unintended consequences. Yes. So, in fact, I delayed meeting with you uh, for at least a couple weeks because it was important for me to have read through it and have an understanding and being able to speak about it. And I'm terrified you're going to ask me too many questions that I don't know the answer to. But frankly, when I was, again, going through it this morning, the reason I don't know the answer to it is because no one there knows no the answer, answers right. to them yet. So if I can kind of outline what sure, the old yeah. felony murder law rule is. Um, so 
uh, California murder law is very complicated. So we're going to just do a very small little primer. And we're going to talk about the old felony murder rule. And that old law, so the law used to be that a person could get convicted of felony murder simply if a victim died during the commission of a felony. So for an example, if uh, Tom, say, uh, kidnapped an elderly woman with the intent to get a ransom, and he didn't use fear, and he didn't use a gun, and nothing like that was used, but in her state of fear, that elderly woman suffered a heart attack and died. Under the old rule, Tom could have been charged with murder under the felony under the old felony murder rule, even though he intended no harm to her. Because what was his intent? His intent was to, quote, unquote, steal her with the intent for financial gain. He didn't intend to kill her. But as a result of committing that felony, that serious and violent felony of kidnap, she died. And some of the intent behind the old felony murder law was don't commit violent don't commit violent felonies right. because you don't know what's going to happen to them and these kinds of things potentially are natural and probable consequences of committing those kinds of of, of crimes that had been the state of the law forever not forever but for a long time for a long time in the state of California and this year it's been complete almost completely dismantled certainly um, well, it required a lot of study to even get to this point to talk about it generally. So the new legal de- definition of felony murder in California is that you can be charged with murder in the commission of a felony if you kill a person, okay, fine, um, or you aid and abet in the commission of murder in the first degree with an intent to kill. So it really comes down to that intent. I have to be able to prove not only that you intended to commit the underlying felony, but that you had an intent to kill um, and there was death as a result. Or you were, quote, unquote, a, a major participant in the felony and acted with, quote, reckless indifference to human life. Now, those are phrases of art. Right. We're familiar with those. So what those. about if you're driving the getaway car? No. And the robbery's happening inside, and, you know, it wasn't supposed to result in somebody getting killed, and it does. And Probably not, unless I can prove that that is a major participant in the felony. So maybe, maybe not, as the driver, what did you know when you were driving the right. car? Did you know that there was going to be a bank robbery? Did you know that they had guns? It's all going to be very, very fact-specific. But if you were part of the um, conspiracy, and you stayed at home that day to monitor radio traffic or to do any kind of, you know, um, ancillary aiding and abetting of the felony, are you going to be on the hook for felony murder? No. And again, under the old rule, you would have been potentially, potentially, absolutely. So we have now narrowed those people who are going to be responsible for deaths that occur during the commission of felonies. Um, that is quite a change. Again, I'm here to enforce the laws that my clients say that they want. But, boy, you have people who are involved in very serious kinds of acts, very serious kinds of conspiracies, potentially, who are going to walk away with no liability um, for really the devastation that's left behind. And, okay, but, our, again, did victims have – a place at the table when that was discussed. Do you think that there's going to be any follow-on legislation to clarify any of this? As, as you said at the outset, it's confusing. There's things about it that, that are not clear at this point. Does it require 
follow-on legislation. Right I know now. that there have has been discussions about cleanup legislation for, I think, almost all the things that we've mm-hmm. talked about today, but for um, AB, um, the 14 and 15-year-olds. Right. Um, but I, again, I have not seen it yet. This is going to be how it goes starting January 1st. And we are going to do, the, and it's retroactive. So, and I, there have not been cases that have been referred back to us from CDCR but I don't – they may be out there that we're going to have to reevaluate. Talk about the retroactive part of it because it goes back quite a ways. Yeah. One of the things that I studied today, which is interesting, I received it from my chief deputy district attorney, was the prison law office memo from San Quentin that went out to all of the inmates, which is kind of an interesting wow. – um, a uh, memo that went out, uh, um, advi- not advising them, but sort of giving um, inmates uh, advice about how to and when maybe they should be contacting their appellate attorney because it may affect their sentence and they may have a cognizable um, avenue for relief as a result of the change of the new law. Because now, um, is it clear on the record that they fell into the very strict parameters of the new felony murder rule? And how far back does the retroactive provision go? That I don't know, and I don't know that there is any. Um, I don't know that there is a start date. Mm-hmm. I think that if you are in if you are in custody, if you are in CDCR custody, and you're in there under that theory, boy, I'd be taking a look at the case. Makes your job more complicated all the time. You know, one of the problems this this came up just this week. Um, the governor commuted a sentence here in Napa right. County. Hutchins was the last name, and I had posted on Facebook actually a concern. I said, "Listen, we're DAs. We know that the governor has the right to commute, to pardon, and so forth. My concern is, were victims contacted, or did they find out about this from the newspaper like I did?" Um, I received a call from the governor's office after that Facebook post um, that I that I said, and I received a phone call, and it was reassuring. And let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, they called. They had heard about my Facebook post because the Chronicle had heard about my Facebook uh. post, and they had been doing a little digging around and basically said the same thing. Were victims advised? All 158 different families, were they advised of the decisions that you were made, that were made? And um, in fact, they do make attempts, at least, to contact those victims, so at least that they are not learning about it the way that I did on online or on the news. I was reassured to hear that. Um, I communicated my strong desire that these victims' family be treated with every dignity, that they're able to learn this information in privacy, that they have a moment before they have to be out in the world knowing um, about these changes. But this is the thing. Now, when I advise victims about, let's say we've resolved a case and I, I um, advise a victim, listen, you're um, this offender. You're not going to see this person back on the street. And I can give them some pretty certain dates, 34 years, eight months. Boy, now it comes with a great big asterisk. And the asterisk is, except for changing legislation, except for you know, all of these things that could happen. So yeah, you can plan your life, but just know that it has an asterisk on it, and that may be changing. Another thing, you mentioned it earlier, and I wanted to get your take on it, um, all of these efforts at bail reform mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Again? I mean, it's another area where even in the reporting of, of what the legislature has done, there seems to be confusion and there seems to be a sense that, well, maybe we went too far or we didn't do it right or we got to go back and look at it or it's not going to work the way we've set it up. So, uh, again... Bail reform started with a conversation about the disproportionate um, representation of brown and black men in custody, um, that we are keeping them, um, poor, poor 
people in custody and letting the rich go free, right? We set, used to be that we'd set a bail amount, you would um, post bail, and the two issues that came before the court were your likelihood to avail yourself of the jurisdiction uh, in normal speak. Are you going to come back and show up for this? And the likelihood that you were going to commit crime. And it had this, you know, this dollar amount on it. And so it resulted that people just stayed in custody that weren't able to make that amount. And it resulted in this disproportionate representation, right? right? And again, I'm a DA because I care about equal protection, equal access, and I care about vulnerable populations. So these are are issues that are important to me. So what has happened is uh, starting in October of next year, although now that date is a little bit in question. there's going to be the dismantling of, of cash bail replaced by risk assessments. Fine. But I bet that those risk assessments are going to assess things like, do you have a job? Do you have a place to live? Do you have someone you can live with? Do you, a lot of those same things that may end up where we still have a disproportionate right. number of poor people that are staying in custody. And... I just, we deserve better than that. We have identified real issues with the cash bail system. We deserve to have something designed that meets those problems. Instead, I'm afraid, we have filler. Right. Is there a model anywhere? Is there somewhere we can look to, and I haven't seen this answered anywhere, in terms of eliminating cash bail and putting in place a system that is more fair and that works. Uh, is there any jurisdiction anywhere that has done it better that we could look to as a best practices? And that's the question I was afraid you'd ask me because my answer <laughs> is, no, I don't know. It's so much easier for me to sit and criticize. The real work becomes creating the new thing. Right. Um, and no, I haven't seen it yet. That doesn't mean it's not out there. It means that we need to continue to search for a fit that's meaningful, that has meaningful results, that isn't just a Band-Aid on the problem. Um, I have not seen it yet. We were talking before we went on the air about I'm a voracious reader, and all I read about is these are these issues. The, this is what I do. I read about it. I listen to it. So it is actively, you know, the search is on. It's really interesting because you think about so many different things with respect to law enforcement, where there are places marijuana legalization comes immediately Mm -hmm. to mind. Other places tried it. People experimented with it. Some things worked. Some things didn't. By the time California came along and other states, you know, you sort of use what works and what doesn't. But I've seen nowhere any reporting on a eliminating cash bail system that works. Emulating these problems is worthy of us. But we have to do it in a way that's thoughtful and meaningful. Yeah. And, And I, boy, I'd love to be surprised. But I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned that what's been provided to us is simply yet another iteration where we're going to have the same kind of results. Are there, as far as you know, more thing, more laws, more changes, more things that impact criminal justice that are, that are coming down the road? Oh, I think we're just getting started with changes um, and really a dismantling of the way that we used to do things. And I don't say that pejoratively. I say that is that's what I see us moving forward. Um, I think that there's going to be a real push towards a lot more diversion programs about eligibility for diversion programs. Um, yeah, that's I, I see a lot of those. I think that we are definitely, 
I, I think, too, there's going to be a big push for more accountability, for more transparency from our law enforcement agencies. We're seeing that just in this last. Right. I think there was the new uh, transparency as it related to body-worn cameras and so forth. The advent of body-worn cameras, the sort of ubiquitous nature of them, even in smaller communities. I think there's going to be those transparency. I think we're going to see that more in DA's offices as well with those integrity units, with um, uh, true conviction units. I think we're going to start seeing those trends um, come out more and more. I think it's going to be really incumbent upon district attorneys to keep to keep dancing as hard as you can, to keep up with all of it, and to make meaningful, thoughtful choices for your cases. Do you sense that at some point that this will go far enough that, that you and your colleagues will get more aggressive politically? in terms of lobbying Sacramento, in terms of lobbying the legislature, that there are real consequences, real-world consequences in communities that are going on here, and, and it's incumbent upon all the district attorneys who are on the front lines of this to really make legislators in Sacramento understand this in a way that they heretofore seemingly haven't. I do think that that is going to be the trend, but boy, I really think that it's going to need to be done in a different way, and it needs to be done in a smart way. So I think it's very easy to go up there uh, and say, be tough on crime, and here are these egregious examples of horrific things that are happening. Um, I think the real work is about recognizing um, this call for the community, for government to be compassionate, that we have meaningful answers to important issues of inequality, of um, mental health disease, of these kinds of issues that are coming to the forefront and tying together meaningful criminal justice legislation in a way that is um, dignified. That's where the real work is. And um, that generation of DAs probably um, coming up soon is going to need to be smarter, be smarter. I want to ask you about one other thing that's sort of a little outside uh, the criminal justice system, but it's something that's gotten a lot of press these days, and that is that a number of district attorneys in the North Bay in particular are looking at what, if any, legal action might be taken on the part of communities against Mm PG&E. Where where do we stand? Where does Napa stand? Where does your office stand on that? Uh, Napa's position has been uh, in solidarity with uh, Sonoma County, Humboldt County, Lake County, and that has been having a conversation with the AG's office and saying, look, each of our offices is quite small to take on PG&E, and what I don't want is this. I don't want to take a case to verdict in Napa uh, and have one verdict and then have an inconsistent verdict in another county Mm -hmm. with another inconsistent verdict in a hung jury where you have um, an inconsistent answer about liability. Um, The request has been, but we are still in ongoing conversation with the AG's office, that that agency, both its size, its jurisdiction, the gravitas of that of that mm-hmm. office has the resources and the ability to move forward in those cases. And we're not saying to do it or not, but simply that they have the jurisdiction to enter into that litigation should they so choose, so that we don't have those problems of inconsistencies, of uh, being swallowed up whole <laughs> by, by legislation with PG&E. But those decisions have not yet been finally made. Napa County District Attorney Allison Haley, I thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thanks so much. You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.